0: Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world, one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So as we continue our One Big Story, we come to this fascinating story that's written in three of the Gospels. On the surface, it's kind of this kung fu battle between Jesus and Satan, the devil, and it kind of makes me think, you know, when, when you think of Satan, the devil, uh, demons, what comes to mind for you? So throughout history, the devil, demons have looked many different ways. From uh, early on, they were kind of painted as scaly, uh, reptilian-like beings with wings that were ugly and fearful. And then when the Renaissance started, interestingly enough, they started to depict them more looking like monks, although they still had... Reptilian type feet and it was kind of communicating this idea though in that art that evil was less obvious that evil can be disguised as looking good. Uh, we see elements of this in Mel Gibson's uh, movie, The Passion of Christ, right? You see the devil portrayed that way. As you moved out of the Renaissance into the early modern era of history, demons became less evil, grotesque, like a little bit more like angels, no claws, no scales or anything like that. And and then in our more modern day, cartoons made uh, him into an evil looking character clothed in red with horns and a tail and a pitchfork and a Halloween character. And can you believe that my pastor parents let me dress up as a little red devil for a Halloween contest growing up? I actually won the Halloween contest with that with that outfit. Every generation envisions devils and angels in their own imagination. The Bible itself is rather vague on actual physical descriptions of angels and demons. The Bible's not actually trying to tell us what these creatures look like. Rather, it's actually focused on teaching us how evil works in reality and the fact that evil is a reality. One of the problems with so many ways demons have been artistically depicted throughout history is that it's made people, especially in our modern period in which we live today, dismiss it as kind of hocus-pocus or superstition. It's kind of a ditch the whole concept of personal evil as a reality is often what happens. But the Bible's message is clear. The story of Jesus that we're looking at today is clear. There is supernatural, personal evil power at work in our world that exacerbates human selfishness and human sin. So Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is the only story included in the Gospels where Jesus was completely alone. There was no one there to record the events or to relate the events to anybody else, which begs the question, why is this story in the Gospels? What is it about this story that Jesus thought it was so important that he wanted his disciples to know it, so he told them and had them write it down so all of us know this story? Even this story itself is a little bit vague on describing Satan, which, again, should communicate something to us. The Bible's purpose, whether it is this story or elsewhere, isn't to tell us all about the devil so that we know everything about him. Rather, the Bible's purpose is to tell us what God is doing about evil in our world. This is a fascinating text. So let's begin reading in Matthew 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now often we talk solely about this as the temptation of Jesus. Our English word tempt, though, is actually kind of limited compared to the Greek word. The Greek word actually carries a really strong sense of the idea of testing. So So think about it. We don't actually say, I was tempted to do something good today, do we? I mean, let's say you saw you decided to do something nice for a friend. You don't say, I was tempted to be kind, right? No, we use the word temptation to refer to when we do something wrong or evil. A more accurate word to describe what, this, what we're reading today is the testing of Jesus rather than the temptation of Jesus. Because testing communicates more clearly the intent of what's going on here. The Spirit of God is leading Jesus into this testing. When we think of testing, what do we normally think of? Oh, some of us, it brings up panic attack memories from college and high school, right? We don't like to think about that. But the purpose of testing is what? It is to see what is inside of the person, right? Testing reveals... What is inside of a person? A teacher teaches you math and then tests you to see what you've taken in and what you still need to learn in order to grow and master that area, right? A coach teaches you skills and then puts you in drills or game situations that test what to see what is actually inside of you. So before we go further, let's put this text in context. Matthew is, again, we talked about writing to, to the Jews. And, and is and is, the way he's writing in Matthew is it loosely follows along with the Exodus story in the Old Testament. The story of Jesus' testing happens immediately out of the last story, which we talked about last week, which was Jesus' baptism. So Jesus is baptized, and remember what happens next? The text says, He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, "This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." So the Spirit of God comes from the Father and communicates this tremendous message of love, affirming the Son and his identity as his son in a very public manner and then the Spirit of God does something else, then the Jesus was led by that same spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we'll see in a moment, explicitly in the first two temptations and as well in the third, the tests challenge Jesus' identity, revealing what's inside of him. So, what's the bottom line of why Jesus made sure this story was told to us? It's because Jesus understood, personally from his experience, that trusting God for our identity is at the core of facing and passing all of the tests of life. This is Discipleship 101. This is the core, the heart of everything in being a follower of Jesus and growing as a follower of Jesus. It is the core of healthy love, of healthy relationships, of healthy faith, of healthy work life, of healthy self-esteem. Your identity is that which defines you as being lovable, and a worthwhile person of one who is secure in belonging to God and to others, to his community. Your identity in Christ is what makes you strong or weak when you face testing. Think about it this way. When was the last time you were struggling with feeling like you were not lovable to God? You were a failure. You were not secure with God. In that moment of struggle, how hard was it for you to face testing difficult circumstances during that time and not fail and succumb to things you didn't want to do? Now, can you think of a time when you felt really deeply loved by God and so secure in his love and had this sense of purpose that you that you knew was from God, it was bigger than yourself for your life? How easy was it then in that moment to face testing times and say yes? to healthier things and no to unhealthier things. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus answers each of the three tests that come His way with Scripture. And oftentimes when this text is taught, the focus is that the way to fight temptation or pass tests of life is to know and quote the right Scripture at the right time. So Scripture is God-breathed, it's God-inspired, it's so good. Knowing Scripture helps us know God and know His wisdom better in life and it helps us know who He thinks we are by knowing Scripture. But that's actually the secondary focus of this text as to what helps us pass the tests of life or to not succumb to temptation. The primary message is when your identity in Christ is solid, when you trust His love for you, when you know how worthwhile you are to Him, when you know He's called you to a godly purpose for your life that is bigger than you, when you truly know you are secure in God's love and His purpose for your life, that's the primary place from which we find the strength and the passion and the peace to pass every single test we will ever face and to live life strong. God leads us into temptation. And in those circumstances, he may even manipulate Satan to tempt us in a certain way. But God's intent is for us to pass that test and be strongly grounded in his love and his power. Why again? Because testing reveals what's inside of a person. I mean, we saw this in our one big story earlier this year, God testing Abraham and David and so many others, not with the intent to see them fail, But to pass the test, to affirm through passing the test in them and and, and increase their confidence even more in what they believe about God and how loved they are. Or, at times, to bring to surface in them the area that they need to focus on and allow God to address in their life next in a loving way as a father would want to help a child grow. So he can work on it. Matthew is drawing direct comparisons between Jesus and Israel coming out of Egypt. Why? Again, because it's true, but because he's also communicating an essential truth to the Jews that he's writing to and to us by the way he's doing that. The Jews were baptized coming through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness, where for them, because of their sin, instead of 40 days in the wilderness, they spent the next 40 years wandering into the wilderness, Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, and instead of going into the Promised Land, Jesus is led by the Spirit and willingly goes into the desert to be tested for 40 days. Israel failed and spent 40 years. Jesus will spend 40 days and will not fail. See, Moses recounts Israel's wandering, wandering in the desert for 40 years in Deuteronomy 8. And in a moment, Jesus will actually quote from the same Deuteronomy 8 in passing this first test. Moses says, "'Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you, so that you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land.'" The test is to see how much we are like our Father God, the one in whose image we are made, the one who trains us, the one who loves us. And there is always a promise in the Lord with His discipline. His draining is to bring us into a good land. I mean, the one big story of the Bible is all about what God's doing for all of humanity to bring them into the goodness that He intended in creation before sin entered the world. So think about it. Can you remember another story where other than the Israelites in the wilderness in the Bible that we've gone over this year where there's one who tests and the characters fail? For many of you, your minds go immediately to Genesis 3, right? At the very beginning. This is what Matthew is doing. He's actually bringing us back to both of these events. He's showing through human history the first Adam's failure and Israel's failure, all of humanity's failure... Yet now in Jesus, we see God interjecting himself into human history in a way that later Paul will refer to Jesus as the second Adam or the last Adam. Humanity and then Israel fail. And Jesus is restarting the story fresh for all of us. And Jesus is guaranteeing the restoration of all of creation for those who will respond in faith to him to what it was originally intended to be before sin. So one quick truth we can hold on to that's so very important for all of us. Since Jesus was tested, we can expect to be tested as well. It's a normal part of being a follower of Jesus. It's not punishment. It is normal, healthy discipline from the one who loves us as our Father. Testing doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It means he does love us as a father. So let's take the next few moments to look more deeply at the three tests of Jesus. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement, right? And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So test one is a physical need test. Do we trust God's love and provision for us? Just to reaffirm our previous point, Satan poses the question, if you are the Son of God, attacking his identity, questioning Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And then he says, well, if you really are and you have hunger and you have a physical need, then if God really loves you, why are you hungry? And if, you're hung- if you are the Son of God, then go ahead. Go ahead. Command the bread to appear and meet your need. I mean, if you're the Son of God, solve the problem yourself. And here's the key question. Does Jesus really trust that God has led him into this difficult circumstance and that God will meet his need in that time? I'm not sure. It, it, it probably didn't, it, it probably didn't feel like that and them, like God was going to meet his need in those moments. I mean, probably he hadn't been, he'd been hungry for days. He was cold. He was shivering at, at night in the desert and hot and dry and, and just parched and dehydrated during the day. I mean, think about his experience. It must have been miserable. And the test says the Spirit led him there. So the question is, does God really care about Jesus' legitimate need of food and water? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8, where where we were a minute ago, saying, But he answered, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus' need for bread is a clear, legitimate need. We all recognize that. This is not saying uh, you don't need bread, you just have to read God's Word and you'll be fine. No, it's not trying to say that at all. This is about, does Jesus trust? Will God meet His needs? And it is Jesus affirming life that life is more than food, it's more than water, it's more than physical things. It is a recognition that you can exist as a human with lots of food and lots of things, and you can still not flourish as a happy, healthy, content person. I mean, mere physical survival doesn't define what life is all about. And physical things don't meet our need for identity. Knowing that we are loved, knowing that we have worth, knowing we are secure. I mean, if they did, if you know anything about Howard Hughes or many other great, very wealthy people throughout history, you know that things don't make one person secure or feel loved or give that person a sense of true worth. So often we think when money is tight and things are difficult, we don't have all we need, that God must not love us. See, only when you live and you trust that his love, even in need, will be there to help you face that challenging time. Will you ever be able to have the kind of strength and contentment and peace that Jesus is trying to lead us to through passing this test? See, Satan constantly tries to make our circumstances determine for us whether God loves us. But God wants us to trust His love confidently knowing He is the one who determines our Circumstances. Jesus is simply saying, I trust my Father God's love for me, and so when He leads me into a difficult, lean time, I don't need to force His hand because He loves me and I'm confident in that love. So, Jesus' second test, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, this is an emotion focused affirmation test that he's experiencing here. In other words, how do we prove God's love for us? And more specifically, how do we prove our worth? Again, Satan starts by casting doubt on Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. So, so get this. Satan, whether in vision or by some miraculous transportation, takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. It's a 150 feet high, 15 stories high on the top of a mountain. Pretty intimidating place to be. The temple is the symbol of God's presence and power on the earth. But then Satan adds a new trick. He quotes Scripture. He's actually quoting Psalm 91, this, this amazing psalm about trust and faith in God. The psalm starts with things like how God is our shelter, how he's our refuge, the one who will deliver us against all odds. And Satan is basically saying, so Jesus, if you are really the Son of God, then make God prove it. I mean, it says he will protect you right here, so jump. Do something big to make God prove your worth. And there's the sense in this temptation that there are people all around as there would have been on a normal day at the Temple Mount. And so Jesus, by jumping and being saved by God, would have received all sorts of affirmation that the power and presence of God was with him if he had just jumped and God had saved him. But this is also a bit like Genesis 3. Satan loves to take God's Word, Scripture, and just kind of twist it just a little bit. In Genesis 3, he tempts Eve, making her doubt God's loving intent. And he pulls Jesus into this, saying, If God said you were the Son of God, then let him prove it now. Pressing the same need for affirmation, for approval, for knowing God is really for you. And Satan here twists Scripture to make it this formulaic prediction of health and wealth and prosperity and popularity and And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 back saying, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So think about it this way. I've talked in the past with really wealthy people who felt really used and betrayed by people who they didn't realize at the time were only friends for what they would do for them. Even if you don't see yourself as wealthy, many of you have had... Fair-weather friends, we might call them. They're there for you as long as you give them what they want. And when you don't, they're gone. And that doesn't feel very good, does it? doesn't feel good at all. God, even more so, wants genuine relationship. In fact, Jesus later on will describe that kind of relationship by referring to it as us being a friend to God. He doesn't want us to be, uh, to, he doesn't want to be to us a vending machine God or a genie in the bottle kind of God. We follow God. We don't command God. He is our God, not the one that you, you rub and out, out he pops and he does what you ask him to do. He doesn't just want to be the sugar daddy. He wants to have a solid, committed love relationship with you. So he naturally tests us because he doesn't just want to be the one in your life that you call upon to do tricks to meet your needs the third test again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and he said to him all these i will give you if you will fall down and worship me did you notice what changed here Satan doesn't go directly at Jesus' sense of identity as saying, if you are the Son of God. That approach wasn't working. Satan knows, on the other hand, that Jesus is called to establish the kingdom of God in the earth. And with Jesus being 30 years now on the earth in the waiting and, and then Jesus gets this affirmation from God not all that long ago at His baptism of who He is and, and only then after that He's led into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. I mean, one could easily think and feel like that affirmation went to seclusion and nothing is really going anywhere and much less the fulfillment of God's call isn't really happening on my life right now. And, and Satan offers Him the kingdoms of the world now if you will bow down and worship Him instead of God. So how many times have you felt like God's plan for you was X, whatever it was, and whatever that was wasn't happening. It was not coming fast. It was going slower. It wasn't happening at all. How did that affect your relationship with God? God has such a good plan for each And every one of our lives, here or listening online, but he wants us to trust him with the plan. Jesus could have been the next Caesar in that moment, but God's plan was something much bigger and much better for him. See, Satan doesn't just go after Jesus' sense of identity. He goes after Jesus' sense of destiny, in this temptation, this, te- this tests. So the question of the test is, how is Jesus going to get there? See, this third test is a test of our power over our destiny. You might also say it this way, are we going to do things in our own power, or are we going to trust God's power, God's way, and His timing? This is one that applies to us especially now even, even beyond what we just talked about in all the division and tumult of our society as well because there's another application to this third temptation. The essence of the specific temptation for Jesus is are we going to trust this world's kingdoms, its social structures and power structures to accomplish God's will? Or are we going to trust God? And the implicit recognition we need to see in this, in Jesus' response to this, is that the social and power structures by which humans organize themselves, the government's activist movements, are all utterly compromised and infiltrated by evil. We see throughout the New Testament phrases that point to spiritual, demonic, evil beings active in our world and also put right alongside statements like our worlds are, like like words with, like of principalities, referring to the ruling governing structures and humans, of human society. Notice Satan claims power and authority over the kingdoms of the world. And there's a reality there. Maybe many of us doubt that, but again, all you have to do is look at our enlightened, modern 20th century to see that in our own enlightenment, we produce the bloodiest century in all of human history. And then you can realize that evil, personal, powerful evil, is present all over the world. It doesn't matter what regime you look at. It doesn't matter whether it was fascist or socialist or communist or democratic. Personal evil, beyond even just humanity's sin, is a reality. This biblical principle needs to inform, honestly, all of our politics. For a Christian to say that capitalism is evil and socialism is good, or vice versa, that socialism is evil and capitalism is good, those are both unbiblically filtered statements, no matter how you look at them. Because the biblical truth is that sin infuses them both. So to inform our voting choices as followers of Jesus biblically, A better question to wrestle with is how does sin typically infect and express itself through capitalism and how is it infecting capitalism today in our world right now? And how does sin typically infect and express itself through socialism and how is it infecting the socialist movement in America right now, today? And to ask that same question of whatever category you want to do, whether it's liberal or conservative or whatever other political or social category you want to use, ask that same question. A better question is, how is sin at work in that, whatever that is? See, we put our hopes way too easily and too much in social structures that are hopelessly infused with sin. And in so doing, we actually fail this same test that Jesus faced and passed. Until Jesus comes back and does away with sin, we as Christian voters will always, in every vote we make, be making the choice between the lesser of two evils. It's just a reality of a sinful world. Certainly, we're commanded by Scripture to pray for leaders, Scripture observes that when righteous leaders are in power, the people are blessed. When unrighteousness is in power, the people are distressed. So we should vote. We should seek to bring as much righteousness to whatever form of government we are living under. But Jesus resoundingly rejects here and throughout his ministry a perspective that causes us to put our trust and our hope in social and political structures to solve the problems of humanity. So let's jump back more directly into Jesus' response now to this one. He says, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He rebukes Satan, dismissing him. He says, For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The tests are over now for Jesus. Jesus showed power over evil. He will be tested again, but He was tested and won in this moment. Jesus points us to the only hope of personal and social change as worship of God. Leading people one by one. To true worship of their Creator, the one whose image they are made in, the one, only one, who can change our hearts. See, Jesus consistently chooses to deal with evil starting on a personal level. We're going to see that more in coming weeks as we look more at at what Jesus talks about and teaches. But Jesus says the way to change the kingdoms of the world is for people to follow the one king and the one kingdom that is greater than all of those, God's kingdom. In passing this third test, Jesus is answering for us all how we bring change to this earth. He is pointing us to the only true change, His kingdom. So why did Jesus tell us this story? Because He knew that we would face the same tests. We would face the same voices that attack Jesus. They will attack us when we choose to follow Him especially. You will have those voices in your head that say, if you really are a son or daughter of God, just look at your life. Can Jesus really love you right now in this difficult circumstance? Look at your decisions you've made. Look at the stuff in your life. And you are honestly telling me you believe God loves you. We will hear those voices in our head. Do you recognize that voice for what it is when you hear it? Do you know what to do with that voice when it comes into your mind, into your heart? Do you say, like Jesus, get out of here? These thoughts are evil and will destroy you if you listen to them. Those voices do not define who you are. Your circumstances do not define who you are. You are made in the image of God, and He defines you. He is the one who loves you and gave Himself for you. Let Jesus speak your value over you, the one who gave Himself for you. Jesus makes clear, the power to live a strong, faith-filled, healthy life, the power to overcome both tests and temptations in life is centered in our identity in Christ being strong. Your identity is that which defines you as being loved, worthwhile, and one who securely belongs to God and to His community. Would you stand with me as we pray? So Lord, I know there are so many difficult things going on in so many of our lives. And Lord, even as I was preparing for this week, I realized that I'm so easily tempted to listen to those voices instead of trusting that you love me, instead of trusting that you have me, instead of trusting that you're leading me. So Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for everyone here. I pray for everyone listening online that your Spirit in this moment would come and reaffirm Your love, reaffirm Your purpose. For those who have lost hope in their purpose, Lord, would You come and reaffirm that You've got their purpose in life, and it is good. Lord, help us all turn to and listen to Your voice and walk in that place of peace and strength and power knowing that You've got us and that You care about us And You love us. So Lord, even as we turn our voices to worship, would You allow these words to be an expression of that worship and a reorientation of our hearts to You. And would You come by Your Spirit and meet us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, Go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org slash give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.